Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Today on the Hal Anderson Podcast with guest host Kathy Kennedy, I'm producer Cam. Kathy spoke with Terry Shaw with the Manitoba Trucking Association amidst the humbled Broncos case ongoing in Melford, Saskatchewan. Brianne Gertson, the provincial director of the Manitoba Health Coalition, joined the program to talk about universal pharmacare. And Matt Nye, the chairman of the Republican Liberty Caucus, he aims at the shutdown as well as Roger Stone and his ongoing issues with the FBI. On this, uh, well, I call it the calm before the storm on this Monday afternoon. Not too bad out there now, but boy, oh boy, just wait. Uh, really thrilled that this gentleman has joined me in studio. I wouldn't have made you come down, Terry, tomorrow when it was minus 50, but <laughs> glad you're here this afternoon. Terry Shaw from the Manitoba Trucking Association uh, in studio. Hey, tell us before we get into some some other specifics, but tell us about the perils of trucking in this cold. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Kathy. Um, and yeah, thank you for having me down today as opposed to tomorrow. But um, <laughs> we were chatting a bit before I jumped on and you know, truck drivers are hard enough job in June, right? Sure. Like, But when you look at these kinds of um, temperatures, I mean, outside of the physical challenges of, you know, warm and cold and all that good stuff, just the impact it has on our equipment, um, you know, if we can get the truck started, keeping them started, keeping them running, um, we were talking about ice and snow buildups and when it stays cold like this, this stuff doesn't come off and under, you know, cargo securement and road safety regulations, we need to make sure that that, you know, isn't going to come off. Um, there's weight concerns when you show up at uh, shippers and receivers and things like that. So there's a whole host of stuff that, y- you know, normal, I guess, passenger vehicle drivers don't even think about when it comes to, you know, operating a vehicle in temperatures like this that truck drivers deal with every day, day in and day out. Well, so. and we should uh, pause and think about that for uh, a moment. Uh, Terry, one of the reasons I wanted to have you down, uh, well, I'd like to see your lovely face uh, in person, which is always nice, but I I wanted to talk to you about, you know, in light of what has transpired with the uh, Humboldt bus crash, um, you know, we we did a little bit of research and found that when it comes to trucking, there are no real clear federal regulations. How in the world is that? So there's no real clear federal regulations when it comes to driver training. There is um, the National Safety Code, which, um, as I've said, you know, repeatedly in past is, is you know, n- national in theory and, you know, a code uh, in theory as well, right? Um, the National Safety Code, which is, uh, has served our industry well, has served road safety well. So, you know, uh, our road safety... Um, statistics for the trucking industry were safe, right? Like that's yeah. not my opinion. That's without question. That said, uh, you know, I'm obviously here today and there's uh, some proceedings going on because we are not incident free, right? And right. so we need to to raise that bar when it comes to the minimum legal standards. And so when it comes to the National Safety Code, unlike, uh, you know, other federally regulated transportation modes, aviation uh, or rail, the trucking mode, um, the authority for interpretation and application and enforcement of the National Safety Code is essentially delegated down to the individual provinces by Transport Canada. And so what that means practically, and it's something our industry has uh, struggled with for years, is that there's just a mishmash of policy and interpretation. So outside of the red tape, when it comes to applying these rules, it's, it's a question of what rules do I apply in what jurisdiction? And then beyond that, 
uh, when it comes to standards and minimum standards, if we do it one way in Manitoba and a different way in Saskatchewan, what are the odds both of those are equivalently as good? So what it means practically is somewhere um, people are operating to a standard that's not as high as it could be. Um, and so again, we have promoted harmonization for a long time. Uh, promoting harmonization does come with peril if people choose to harmonize to the lowest standard as opposed to the highest standard. So that's one of those be careful what you, you wish for type uh, situations. But when it comes to driver training, you're absolutely correct. There is no um, current federal standard right now outside of the licensing standards, which in Manitoba to get your class one license, um, you know, there's a written test and a road test, which is pre-trip inspection, air brake inspection. Um, you drive around for half an hour, 40 minutes. The whole test itself takes about 90 minutes right now. And bang, you're a truck driver. Yeah. So we for years have been calling um, for some change and, um, you know, over the last year or so, unfortunately, uh, well, fortunately, we've gotten some traction with that politically, right? So we do believe this will change um, not only in Manitoba, but across Canada. Well, and we can only hope so. But, you know, I can only imagine being a truck driver and the owner of a trucking company and having to navigate the waters or nay the roads Mm -hmm. of you know running between manitoba and bc and the myriad of of you know different standards along the way how i mean terry come on yeah, uh, unfortunately, it's good job security for a guy like me and the Manitoba Trucking Association. Compliance assistance is, um, you know, outside of the advocacy work we do is a huge um, role we play on behalf of our members. Hey, I'm going here and I'm trying to do that. How do I do that compliantly? You know, our members call us with those kinds of questions all the time. But even just internally in Manitoba um, to stay on that driver um, training and driver licensing theme, um, you know, there are a bunch of companies that have work right now that have trucks sitting idle and there are a bunch of Manitobans with class one licenses in their hand unemployed right now. And, you know, and so how can that be if this person is provincially licensed to legally operate a truck, but those in the trucking industry are saying, you know, you're not employable, right? So the licensing standard is by no means an employability standard. Right. And that is the gap um, that we're hoping to, if not fill, certainly close Um, when it comes to our mandatory training standards. Um, People come to industry with a class one license and then our industry members have to road test these people to determine the practical validity of this license that they have, you know, to see if they can actually drive a truck. And if they can't, there's really no recourse other than not hiring them. And then so they go down the street and road test with somebody else and they go down the street and road test with somebody else and eventually they get frustrated and move on, get some more training and or sometimes they get hired, you know. Um, And so, again, when it comes to driver training, there uh, is is a gap there. Uh, Our industry does a good job of self-policing today, but not everybody self-polices to the same level. And that's that minimum uh, legal standard that we're trying to address through our mandatory training push here, again, in Manitoba and across Canada. And we have a shortage of drivers in this province, correct? Uh, in, across Canada. Um, in Manitoba alone, Manitoba's most recent labor market information report published by the province of Manitoba, these aren't my numbers, over the next seven years... We need in Manitoba alone almost 4,000 truck drivers. Wow. Of 500. That's out- unbelievable. Of 500 specifically listed occupations, truck driver is the fifth 
uh, highest net job openings. It, it is in the top 1% uh, of needed occupations in Manitoba. And that's, you know, outside of the concerns that presents for the trucking industry, uh, we exist to serve, you know, um, manufacturing, construction, We've got a big ag community, uh, retail trade. Um, if you bought it, if you ate it, if you used it at work, odds are pretty good it spent some time on a truck. So this is not only a concern for our industry members, but our provincial and, quite frankly, national economies. So, Terry, I know that you've been advocating for many years already uh, to, to get some change uh, into the system. And so my question to you is, if you had a chance to finally sit down one-on-one with the government of the day, and, and have their ear, what would you say? What, what do you want? What does MTA want? Sure. So uh, to their credit, we've had, uh, you know, uh, a number of discussions, um, not a lot of traction to the, to the level we want at this point. Uh, the government's got a lot on the go, um, especially uh, with Manitoba infrastructure. They've, you know, some personnel changes. And so, again, getting traction has been difficult. But we've asked them certainly about mandatory entry-level training. Um, we've asked them about just a general road safety review in terms of their carrier profile system. Uh, there's a number of licensing types that are exempt from the safety fitness framework of the National Safety Code while operating on Manitoba roads. Um, U.S. trucking companies are exempt <laughs> from the National Safety Code while operating on Manitoba roads, right? How does that work? Um, so there's a, a range of issues. And really what we would want um, is just to, okay, you know, electronic logging devices, they know well our position on that. It's a longstanding position. Again, the, the current legal minimum standard is pen and paper. Yep. Um, which it's 2019, you know, everybody's got, everybody's got a computer in their pocket. Everybody's got a computer in the truck. And if they don't have that access to those is extremely cost effective and and easy. Um, So electronic logging devices, mandatory entry-level driver training, uh, Manitoba's carrier profile system, basically the carrier's scorecard is in uh, dire need of an upgrade. The underlying algorithms were developed many, many decades ago and, again, have served us well, um, but are uh, there's a gap there. Um, when it comes to new carrier entrants, um, you, quite frankly, um, could fill out, I think it's a one-page application form and have a trucking company up and running in Manitoba this afternoon. You know, it's um, so that, that pre-screening of new carrier entrants, we believe it's, it's on their radar. We haven't had any uh, firm formal discussions in that regard yet. But, you know, all of those elements are things that we've been speaking to for years. And uh, many of those issues we saw at play, unfortunately, in the Humboldt situation. Um, you know, uh, driver training was raised as a question there. Um, you know, the carrier's uh, background and their operating record yeah. was something that was deemed to be, you know, um, of question. Uh, and quite frankly, after the incident, they shut down their current company and started a brand new company uh, days or a week later. And legally, there's no issue with that, right? That's the current system in in not only Alberta, but Manitoba as well. And so those are the gaps that we're t- trying to close. They are by no means uh, the majority of people in industry operate in that fashion, but if some people have the opportunity to do that, it's been recognized. Close those gaps. Well, yeah, and it only, <clears throat> pardon me, it only takes one incident and that's... to change 16 lives. Exactly. <clears throat> pardon me. Good to have you in studio. Thank you for uh, for coming down. Yeah. And, uh, you know, let's hope that some people are listening this afternoon and uh, we get some change. Right on. Thanks, Kathy. You bet. Terry Shaw from the Manitoba Trucking Association. 215, we'll take a break. When we come back, your weather forecast, and then we're going to... 
go from trucking to pharmacare. We'll tell you about that right after we do these on 680 CJOB. The Manitoba Health Coalition is uh, going to be joining fellow public health care advocates from right across the country to discuss the need for a universal public pharmacare program. Joining me is uh, Brianne Gertzen, who is Provincial Director of Manitoba's Health Coalition. Hi, Brianne. Hello. Tell us, first of all, about uh, the Health Coalition. Who is it comprised of and, and what exactly do you guys do? Yeah, most definitely. So the Manitoba Health Coalition just recently launched in Manitoba just over six months ago. And we're a collection of organizations from uh, the community to labor to individual members. So anybody who has a vested interest on the preservation and the expansion of public health care in Manitoba and more broadly in Canada should really consider about being a part of our coalition of really unique and impassioned health care advocates. All right, we're going to get into the the hows and whys they can do that a, a little bit later. But I want to uh, to ask you, you're going to be sitting down with uh, other coalitions across the country, and you're going to be meeting mm-hmm. with ma- MPs and senators to discuss the need for this universal public pharmacare program. What do you think the odds of getting a universal pharmacare program in place are? I think now is the time. If we're looking at the variety of committees that have come uh, to pass, for example, the House Committee on Health uh, at the federal level has also made a recommendation for a universal public pharmacare system. Now is the time to ensure that we have a pharmacare system that covers all Canadians, not just the select few. It's really about ensuring that we're saving money when it comes to our prescription drugs and ensuring that 25% of Canadians who cannot afford to take their medicines can actually take the medicines as prescribed to them. Well, yeah. And that was a number that that really did catch my eye, mm-hmm. that one in four Canadian households cannot afford their prescription medication. Yes, most definitely. And that has a domino effect on our healthcare system. So what we're seeing is those folks who are unable to access their prescription medication or if they're stretching out their prescription medication, um, they're actually visiting the hospital rooms at a higher frequency. They're needing uh, uh, extraordinary interventions from the medical system to kind of address those healthcare concerns that could have been remedied if they were able to access the prescription drugs that were prescribed to them. Well, and and this was another thing that caught my eye, that we are the only country that has universal health care that does not provide for pharmacare. I know. It is actually mind-boggling that we don't. And the savings that we would see out of a universal system um, can be pegged at upwards of $11 billion. So it's really about if we're looking at making sure that Canadians have access to prescription drugs, that we're instituting a single-payer model um, that ensures that we, we are being not only wise with our taxpayer dollars, but we're ensuring that we're covering all Canadians. Brianne, that's a big number, $11 billion. So how, mm-hmm. how do you quantify that? Yeah, for sure. It was actually a report that was uh, released by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, as well as uh, the doctors uh, for Canadian Doctors for Medicare. Uh, and they were looking at the cost savings of uh, instituting a pharmacare program. And a lot of the costs are realized uh, through this bulk purchasing uh, of prescription drug medications. It would effectively reduce the amount that we're paying. Right now, we're the third highest uh, country paying for prescription drugs, uh, a very startling number considering we 
we do have a universal uh, Medicare system. And in fact, Pharmacare was a part of the discussions when Medicare was being discussed in Canada and fell off the table due to a variety of political reasons. However, when we're looking at the realizations of savings, uh, going to a single payer Pharmacare model makes a lot of uh, sound financial sense. And it is also the right thing to do for uh, Canadians as well. Well, and I mean, I, I don't think anybody listening this afternoon would disagree with you uh, one iota, uh, Brianne. Mm-hmm. But why do you think now is the right time? What What about what you're seeing now leads you mm-hmm. to believe that this is this is the time to talk? Well, it's always been a time to talk. As long as we we don't have pharmacare, we should always be talking about the need for pharmacare. Um, but for right now, we're, what we're seeing is Canadians are seeing skyrocketing premiums, co-pays are going up, the ability uh, to get your prescription drugs is less considering if you're employed or if you're not employed. Uh, the other piece is, is we are looking for savings within our healthcare system. Uh, and there are savings to be realized if we're going through a prescription drug model that ensures that Canadians do have access to their drugs, like, I, like I've previously said. And it is really about uh, ensuring that we're looking at a system of care that was what Medicare was intended to be. And that was intended to have Pharmacare from the very beginning. When when are you going to sit down and have this meeting with uh, MPs and senators? Tomorrow, we will be meeting with well over 100 MPs and senators across Canada to be advocating for our universal single-payer public pharmacare program. And I think what really needs to be impressed upon people is this is not just a Manitoba issue, but it is happening across uh, across the country where Canadians are making a really hard choice about whether or not they're going to be paying their rent, uh, paying their heating bill, or um, making sure that they're, they have food on the table for their family. Well, I think we'll definitely circle back and touch base with you on Wednesday and and see how those meetings uh, went. But, Brianne, if people want more information about the coalition, how do they get it? Yeah, for sure. They can uh, check out our website, mbhealthcoalition.ca. They can find us at Twitter, uh, Facebook, again, MB Coalition, uh, Health Coalition. And uh, we welcome anybody who has a passion to ensure that we have a universal system uh, of healthcare. So the protection and the preservation of the healthcare system that we have with the inclusion of Pharmacare. Brianne, best of luck to you on the meetings tomorrow. And uh, again, we'll touch base with you on Wednesday and uh, get your read on how they went. Sounds great. Thank you very much for having us. We really appreciate it. You bet. Brianne Gertson, who is Provincial Director of Manitoba's Health Coalition. 225 will take a break. News is next on 680 CJOB. Um, want to talk to this gentleman. He is a uh, seasoned political activist and chairman of the Republican Liberty Caucus. Matt, jo- or Matt Nye, rather, is joining us. How are you, Matt? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, and thanks for joining us uh, once again. Uh, before we get into all things Roger Stone, I have to get your take on the government shutdown and, and the fact that it's over. And I, I want to get your view on whether... President Donald Trump caved, or is this a, a smart move that he's made? You know, I, I it's kind of funny. I'm I'm torn. On the one hand, I wish he had not uh, uh, signed the spending bill, but at the same time, he's put himself in a position like he's put the ball back in the Democrats' court. So I'm not sure if you want to call it a cave because the uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the final chapter has yet to be written, right? So it depends on what happens after this three weeks. He's effectively, by doing this, he's taken away the argument uh, that the Democrats are making that he's unwilling to compromise, right? He agreed 
okay, I'm going to, you know, open the government for three weeks because you said you're going to negotiate in good faith. And if they don't come back with something, uh, you know, substantial, and I don't think they will, then he'll use his emergency powers uh, and that'll be that. So, uh, you know, it's it's kind of hard to, to in, in, a, in a sense, you could say he caved, but at the same time, I think it's part of a bigger picture. Well, and, and do you think, how much of a role do you think poll numbers played with all of this? Because, you know, as the shutdown dragged on, you saw those poll numbers for him continue to drop. And, and he's a man who loves to look at numbers. Do you think that played uh, any sort of role? Uh, I'm not sure that the polling played as big a deal as the economic numbers, right? I suspect he was looking... Uh, at the impact it was having on the economy uh, more so than the actual polling data would be my guess, because it was, you know, the shutdown was starting to have an impact on the actual economy. I mean, in addition to the 800,000 federal workers that were going to be going without another paycheck, you had the kind of the ripple effect with the contractors. You've obviously got some uh, ramifications in regard to travel, right? TSA, the air, air traffic controllers. I had heard the uh, uh, there were going to be some pretty significant ramifications with the Super Bowl, right? Just the economic impact that, that uh, uh, the travel issues could have had on the Super Bowl. So I don't know that it was so much about polling as it was about economic uh, impact. Well, and, and before, once again, we get into uh, all things Roger Stone, because certainly uh, that has had media, uh, their hearts a flutter uh, since the weekend. But before we get into that, let, let me ask you this, Matt, you know, as, as someone who has watched this political game for, for many, many years, have you ever seen anything quite like what's going on uh, at the White House and in Congress uh, these days? I think it's uh, worse now than we've ever seen it. Um, it's it's just amazing. There's there's absolutely no pretense. There's not even a pretense at doing the right thing or doing what's right for the country. It's all it's either pure partisan politics or it's uh, pure you know your Trump guy or never Trump guy. There's no in the middle. It's very frustrating, um, and I think Americans are are getting very sick of it you know, based on the conversations I have at the grassroots level. Well, and, and let's talk about uh, the Liberty Caucus. Tell us about the Liberty Caucus. What is the caucus comprised of? So we were founded in 1991 by some big L uh, libertarians that decided the third party, uh, the third party approach was not working. And so they decided to work within the Republican Party. So we're for uh, free markets, Individual liberty uh, typically tend to be fiscal conservative, smaller government types. Over the years, we've incorporated a lot of the Tea Party folks, you know, so we've got Tea Party people. We have what they call constitutional conservatives. So pretty much, uh, you know, the, the limited – we call ourselves the conscience of the Republican Party, right? The core principles of the Republicans going all the way back, uh, you know, Gold, Goldwater was kind of our uh, – uh, the gold standard back in the 60s, so – all right. So, uh, but one phrase caught my uh, caught my ear right away, and that is fiscal conservatives. Um, mm-hmm. Something we have not seen in Washington, and never mind just with this government. <laughs> but in in hey, look, right. uh, Barack Obama ran up some pretty huge deficits himself. I mean, I, where do you go on this front? Because the spending well, continues. Sure. No. That's and that's the that's the frustration, right? Is that the Republicans 
say they are for all those things that I just mentioned, but then when they get elected, they don't follow through. And so that is the, and that again, that's where the tagline, right, the conscience of the Republican Party comes from is we remind them, hey, you guys ran on these things. You ran on cutting taxes. You ran on cutting the size and scope of government. You need to follow through. And, and when they don't follow through, that is inevitably when they get beaten, right, in the next cycle, because the people that worked so hard for them and donated and, and voted for them become disillusioned and they just check out. They don't they don't participate in the next election cycle. And then, of course, the pendulum swings back the other way and the Democrats pick up seats. So that's, you know, the, the Democrats, when they win, they follow through in a big way, right? They go pedal to the metal and beyond on their agenda. But when the Republicans win, they don't follow through on the things that they And why know, is that, Matt? I, I, I'm failing to understand why that is. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, you know, if I knew the answer to that, I would be a very rich and powerful man. <laughs> you would probably be I, president. And it's got to be, I don't know if they get bad advice from consultants or if it's just once they get in, they're so beholden, you know, to the special interest, they start looking at what's good you know, for their, their special interest buddies, as opposed to, to, because again, when they, when they follow through and when they stand on principle on, on, and follow through on those promises, they normally do very well in terms of getting reelected. So it's, it's hard to understand why they don't uh, do what they promise. It is very hard to understand. All right. Help us understand uh, why there was such a big to do about Roger Stone and and him being arrested? So, tell us first of all what is Stone being charged with, and and what does this indictment include? Well, and that's that's what's so amazing, right? Is this is this is all stemming from uh, a special investigation that's supposed to be going after to prove collusion with the Russians on the part of the president, and instead, what you've got basically is Roger Stone being indicted for making quote-unquote false statements uh, in interviews and things. And basically these are what they call process crimes, right, where essentially if he testifies in one location or says something in one location under oath, and then let's say that he forgot something, you, you know, you can make an honest mistake when in these interviews, and then they come back and say, oh, well, you, you know, this is, uh, you gave false testimony. Well, no, you just, you know, I literally just forgot something, uh, but they, they, they treat it. Uh, as a crime, and they've charged him. And it's basically what's really scary, like every American should be truly concerned, because basically what they're doing now is they're making a difference of political opinion, they're turning it into a criminal uh, offense. And that's, you know, what you saw with Stone being arrested by, you know, an entire cadre of uh, FBI task force agents, you know, guns drawn, uh, crack on, you know, waking the guy up in the middle of the night with guns drawn. Uh, it, it's truly amazing uh, that we've reached that point. I mean, there's there's no reason in the world to treat a 66 year old man uh, like that. They could have called his attorney. He could have turned himself in. Uh, you know, what if they knew he didn't have a gun? But hypothetically, what if he did have a gun and they kicked his door down and somebody ended up being shot? You right. know, over something like this. It's just ridiculous. Well, I mean, it, it played uh, great on the TV screens because, boy, oh, boy, did uh, U.S. media lap that one up. So so what happens next, Matt, and, and what do you think the next shoe is to drop? Well, I, I, you know, I would, first of all, I would not want to be Roger Stone in the sense that you've got the full weight and force, right, of the federal government bearing down upon him. Uh, you know, he's made it very clear he's not going to 
make false statements against President Trump. I expect he'll hold true to that. Um, you know, I know he's taking donations for a legal defense fund, uh, and he estimated, I heard, two, I think it was $2 million is what he expects his legal bills would be. So, you know, just ponder the the enormity of that, right? If you're if you're on the receiving end of these, and if the charges are false, which I believe they are, uh, I mean, think about you know you're they're 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 basically destroying this guy because he thumbed his nose at Mueller in, in the press. Well, and and some would say, you know, hey, look, he he's been taunting uh, Robert Mueller all along, and and has sure. almost invited what has transpired. Well, you know what, though, this is America, like you're supposed to, this is America, we're supposed to be free to speak our minds. And, you know, the, I, I think the, the, the you, from a political standpoint, I would understand, you know, he calls himself the dirty trickster. If somebody went after him politically, like if he were running for office or something like that, but this is different. This is where, you know, you're, again, you're using the full force and power of the federal government, the Justice Department. Uh, it's very scary. I mean, this is, you know, in the whole thing with CNN being there to film this, I mean, there's no question this is intended to silence uh, critics of the Mueller investigation. So. Well, it's it's certainly going to be interesting to see what the days and weeks ahead will bring. But, you know, I, I got to give props to Mr. Stone in, in his uh, trying to raise funds for his legal defense in selling those stones <laughs> Which apparently he's doing at ten dollars a stone. Uh, you know, God love him for being creative. Where he's he's taken a rock and signed it, and selling for ten dollars. It's a Roger Stone. <laughs> Matt he's, always is a true entrepreneur. He is indeed. Uh, Matt, always good to talk to you and get uh, perspective from you. I have a feeling we're going to be talking to you in the weeks ahead. Sure. My pleasure. Appreciate it. You bet. Matt Nye is uh, chairman of the Republican Liberty Caucus and uh, political activist. Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.